Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, proudly presented by Roast House Pub, where elevated culinary creations meet a fresh, evolving craft beer selection, making it one of Frederick's unique dining destinations. Hey everyone, I'm your host Chris Sands, and today I'm joined by Brent Manning from Riverbend Malt House. He is one of the co-founders. Uh, thanks for joining me, Brent. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. So I've I've interviewed yeast propagators, uh, hop, hop farmers, uh, hop sellers, but this is the first time we've talked to someone with the other most important ingredient of beer. Uh, so I'm excited for all of us to get a lesson on malt. So, um, honored let's let's, what's, I mean, let's just follow the typical format of when I interview a brewery. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself first and what your background is and how you ended up starting Riverbend? Yeah. So long winding road there. Um, uh, I, Got out of school, had a master's in marine science, and uh, worked in uh, stream and wetland restoration for better part of a decade uh, as my first career. And that that was through a long winding road tied to uh, development uh, and all the the housing boom that was going on in the early 2000s. Well, oh, so was it like doing the stu- the environmental impact studies? On- yeah. Exactly. Kind of that work and, and my restoration work was balancing out projects that were destroying streams and wetlands in the same watershed. And um, so I, I was on the kind of touchy feely side of the environmental world. Um, but when the housing market collapsed in like 2007, 2008, uh, they didn't need my services anymore. And so I went looking for uh, career 2.0. And uh Really, myself and my co-founder, Brian Simpson, uh, we were very focused on sustainability. And so we knew like whatever we were going to do, Brian was also working at the same firm. He was a a geologist. And so he was doing like water uh, modeling uh, and a variety of phase one, phase two stuff. And anyway, we knew whatever we were going to do needed to be sustainably uh, focused and you know, we moved our families to Asheville. We just wanted to be in the mountains. I'm into fly fishing and he's into trail running. And, and we just we wanted to be there. Wilmington was getting too crowded. And um, so we started looking around and we're like, well, we don't want to be the 13th brewery in, in Asheville. That would be crazy, right? So How we many said, are there now? There's 40. So we yeah. totally looked at it. Totally missed the boat on that can't, piece. Can't you know? possibly sustain 14 yeah, No way. Like, who, what, what fool would open the 14th brewery in this little town? And uh, so we're like, well, let's take the Levi Strauss model. Like, what's, you know, let's sell the jeans to the miners kind of thing. And uh, so we started looking around at, at the what goes into beer. Hops, of course, come to mind because... You know, whoever their PR director is deserves a raise because if you ask nine, ten people on the street, nine of them will tell you hops are the only thing in beer. And yeah. but so well, it we depends started, on it, it depends on who you talk to. My, some people might just say fruit. Right. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The, with the fruited sours. Absolutely. It'll just be like, uh, I don't know, raspberries. Yeah. And uh, so. So we start looking around and, and, you know, this is 10, 12 years ago. So hops can grow in the South. They don't grow well in the South. But when we got to the story of, of small grains and malt, the conversation got much more interesting because 
North Carolina, on average, grows about half a million acres of small grains, and that meaning barley, wheat, rye, uh, uh, et cetera. And so that meant we had an infrastructure system in place. You know, we had cleaning, we had growers, we had, and most importantly, we had researchers from uh, NC Ag Extension. And so we reached out to those folks and they immediately helped us connect with growers and, and kind of understand the landscape because uh, we grow winter grains in the South. So that that's uh, from October to June is the typical growing season. Whereas most of the barley that's grown from malt is in the spring out in the Western U S Western Canada and Western Europe. So we're like, Oh wow, this is amazing. Like m- maybe there's a there there. And we start, kind of tinkering around. We meet with a gentleman uh, named Dave Marshall, who's a USDA agricultural research uh, service uh, guy who actually used to work for the American Malting Barley Association. And anyway, he's like, yeah, you can malt this. Here's a bag of thoroughbred six row barley grown in North Carolina. Go play. And we're like, holy cow, this is amazing. So Brian takes it, uh, make, turns it into malt in his basement. I'm just the home brewer. So he brings it to me. I turn it into craft beer and you know, six row barley, as as many know, is not the premier uh, choice for craft beer, but it was what we had. And so, you know, I still remember the the one paragraph in Charlie Papazian's book. You know, I wish I could just strike it from from the record because it it tainted my opinion of it as well. You know, I was like, I don't know, Brian. You know, typically six row is going to have high high protein. We're going to have to step mash. Blah 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 blah. blah. No, not the case. Six row grown in North Carolina, less than 11% protein. Uh, we were able to make great malt with it. And uh, so, so we, so typically it's, it's two row that's used, yes. right? So yeah. what, what does that mean? What is the difference between two row, six row? Like what's that designation? Right. So think about the, the head of the plant, the seed head of the plant. So, the two-row barley has just two rows of kernels up the seed head that grow uniformly and they grow more plump. The six-row kernel is more tightly compact and that compaction leads to a lack of uniformity and overall smaller size. So you get more husk per pound of kernel essentially. So yeah, so kind of think about it like an apartment complex versus the suburbs. So you found that it was usable, but it would be way less efficient to use that because you would have a lot more waste because of the Uh, added husk? Yeah, not way less efficient. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 81% extract versus 79% extract. Oh, okay. So, So, yeah, (laughs) not a huge departure, but just enough to be kind of a stick in the spokes if you're used to brewing with two-row every day. So so we kind of start with that as the the, – as the background. Um, and so we work with thoroughbred. This is, we're getting started, you know, 2010, 2011. And, um, we, we kick off and we're, we're just trying to, we're making one ton at a time. And, you know, just trying to ask, answer a simple question. Do people care about local malt to, to put things in perspective? Malt is a global commodity. So it's made in gigantic production facilities close to the primary barley regions of Western Europe, Western US, Western Canada. So, you know, we're talking two, three, four, five hundred tons at a shot from people like RAR and ABM Bev and all those folks, right? So doing this in the South was completely just 
out of line, basically. Like, so we, we had a lot of education to do to tell people like, hey, yes, this is six row barley, but the protein is in line with what you're used to working with. You just need to tighten the mill and you'll get a good crush and you'll get acceptable extract efficiency levels in the brew house. And oh yeah, we're supporting local farmers that are, you know, less than a hundred miles down the road. So, you know, it was a, it was a long winding road to get there. So we, we, like I say, we started at one ton with one ton batches. And as I sit today, we're uh, waiting on the fourth 10 ton germ kiln vessel to arrive uh, from a fabricator in Michigan. So, and we're in 70,000 square feet. So it, it's been absolutely nuts to uh, go on this ride. My hair was a lot browner when we started. <laughs> I, um, Everyone should go. I, I've been trying to, uh, while paying attention to you, also looking to find where the easiest way to have people find the video that you guys made for uh, your 10-year anniversary. Because uh, it's it, it's very interesting. It gives a good backstory. Because I'll, I'll make sure I put a link to that yeah. uh, in the notes of the show. Uh, yeah, I, think I found I, that I, in. Is it nestled in our blog somewhere? I, believe? I think so. I, I, I've, I just found the direct link I have so that it'd be easy. So just look in the show notes. There will be a link to the video. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Because uh, that, that does a good job showing of the immense growth that you've had over the last 10 years. So I guess that means that you found brewers did care about using local malt. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's it's been really fun to see, you know, I, we always kind of walk in, you know, hat in hand and we want to do a, a seasonal or a one off. And, and we kind of want brewers to start with the malt and go from there. You know, like a lot of folks were like, oh, well, I've already got my recipes baked in for my flagships. I'm like, that's great. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, please. It, this malt is going to taste differently. And that's exciting. That should be exciting to you, you know. Um, but so we've had the best success with breweries that have said, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to take, you know, the rustic profile of this six row uh, pale malt and I'm going to make a grisette with it or I'm going to make a, you know, I'm going to put this into my Solera program or whatever, you know. So we we've ridden a bunch of interesting uh, style waves over the years, you know, when mixed culture was, was big, you know, our six row Pilsner was perfect for those style. It had that sort of hard to describe, but know it when you taste it rustic quality. And, you know, when, when hazy kicked off, we had malted oats ready to rock and roll for that. And, you know, now as we sit in, in kind of the rise of, of the modern lager movement, we've got, a ton of single origin pilsners that are, are really exciting to folks that, that fit in a lot of these, you know, subcategories that uh, brewers are exploring. Now, are you getting all of your raw material just in North Carolina or you're, are you sourcing from all over the place now? Cause it looks like you have an extensive portfolio of what yeah. you're malting. Yeah. So we're pulling everything from the Southeast. So, you know, from, from DC down. So okay. we've got growers in the Chesapeake Bay region, uh, and we've picked up uh, raw rye from as far south as the Tampa Bay area in Florida. So I always joke with people, it can't be local enough. Y you know, if I 
being in Asheville, we're only a, an hour's drive from, you know, Tennessee, uh, Virginia, South Carolina. So the minute I cross over those state lines, people are like, okay, that's cool. You got stuff from North Carolina, but what do you have from my state? And <laughs> so we, we try to work really hard to kind of start with a grower relationship and then build the brewery relationships in, in the given state. Um, we've, um, it's been it's been fun you know like i say we started with one grower in north carolina and now we're working with you know in a given year anywhere from eight to ten growers uh throughout the southeast and um it's been exciting you know i always tell people we have one foot in the past one foot in the future so we're working with an heirloom we might be malting an heirloom rye variety on the floor in the germ room and we might be working with a brand new variety um, like uh, this one coming out from Virginia Tech called Avalon in the germ kiln vessel at scale, you know. So it's um, it, it's a lot of fun. It keeps us on our toes. Let's take um, a real quick sponsor break. And when we get back, um, can you teach us what the malting process actually is? Uh, Absolutely. So we will be right back. Uncapped is brought to you by one of Frederick's original Maryland craft beer destinations, located off of Urbana Pike, featuring a warm, inviting atmosphere and knowledgeable staff serving up fresh, locally sourced culinary creations and unique craft beers on tap. Open seven days a week, our friends at Roast House Pub invite you to enjoy a casual lunch, happy hour specials, delicious dinners, and specialty desserts. Follow them on social media to keep up to date on their monthly beer dinners, on spaghetti dinner battles, and what beer is being featured for Buck Above Monday? Idiom Brewing Company proudly offers a delicious variety of beers to satisfy the most discerning tastes. Best known for their wide array of IPAs, delicious fruited sours, and robust porters and stouts, Idiom has a simple goal in mind, to bring people from all walks of life together, to enjoy themselves and each other. Whether you're a hophead looking for explosively juicy IPAs, are one of the adventurous few looking to try boozy, sour, or complex flavors, or just looking to enjoy classic styles and seasonal favorites, they'll have a little something for you. Idiom Brewing Company is located in downtown Frederick, just south of the intersection of East Street and East Patrick Street, with ample seating directly on Carroll Creek. Okay, so what is malt? Yeah, yeah, I guess we should back up and define yeah. uh, what it is we actually do. Um, so you can make alcoholic beverages out of raw grains, but it's insanely inefficient. So to make malt, to, to define malting is basically managing the enzymatic digestion of the cell walls inside of each kernel as they're converted into a starch or simple sugar, which is then extracted in the brewing and distilling process. So we malt grain by putting it through uh, three steps, steeping, germinating, and kilning. So steeping takes about two and a half days. It goes through three wet, dry cycles. The grain starts at about 12% moisture, and we walk it up to about 45% moisture, which is optimal for germination. So the reason we don't do one long steep is because we would basically drown the grain. It needs to breathe. Um, so we get the steeping right, it, and it doesn't sound very exciting, but this is actually the most essential part. Like if you mess up the steep, you would chase it for the rest of the process. So two and a, uh, two and a half days, three wet dry cycles, 
the grain will uh the first visual cue we get is that the grain is alive and working we see it uh, what we call the chit and it basically looks like a little kind of pimple coming out of the bottom of the kernel and from the chit the rootlets sprout um so we see the grain chit we get the moisture tested put the grain onto the floor when it goes on the floor it's in like a four to six uh inch deep bed and the grain begins to germinate and this period of time can last anywhere depending on what type of product you're making from three to five days so during germination that's when the enzymatic digestive process actually takes place so during this time you're, the grain's developing a lot of heat and the rootlets are growing and so as the rootlets grow they bind together and so we have to pull a rake through the grain on the floor to break that rootlet material up and mix the grain so that we get that heat out and we get fresh air in. Um, this is where the maltster's art starts to come in the conversation because we have a limited portfolio of raw materials, but we can make dozens of different products. And so, for example, if we're going to do like a, a Pilsner style malt, that's slightly under modified. So that might stay on the floor for three and a half days, something like that. Um, and we'll couple that with a cooler kilning regime. So, but really during that process, we're evaluating the grain for, for flavor and what we call modification, the level of that cellular breakdown. And so we do that by popping kernels open, looking at the first leaf of the plant called the acrospear. So the acrospear grows underneath the husk of the barley. When it's fully modified, the acrospear should be the full length of the kernel. When it's slightly under modified, it'll be between 50 and 75%. The other piece of the story is looking at the white starchy endosperm underneath the husk. And so that material, as it breaks down, goes from something that rolls up like clay to something that feels more like um, slightly dried Elmer's glue. And so the point in which we decide to make the transfer from germination to kilning helps us determine the finished product. Or, or ensures that we're hitting the mark on the finished product. So for Pilsner, it's slightly under modified and it's gonna taste like fresh cut cucumbers. If we're doing something like a British pale ale or a Munich, we want it to be fully modified, maybe slightly over modified. And it's gonna taste more like pizza dough right before you pop it into the oven. So same raw material. And so we're watching it during that continuum between three and five days. From germ, we go into kilning. Kilning is a 24-hour process where we put a ton of air into the grain bed, drying it down um, in a very methodical uh, process. We don't want to get too hot too fast because we'll destroy the enzymes that brewers need to drive the conversion process in the mash tun. So over that 24 hours, we're going to go through freeze-dry, force-dry, and curing, three distinct steps, and again, we're, we're dialing each of these in for flavor and efficiency purposes, right? So free dry, temps are cool. We're just trying to dry it down gently. Um, once we see the humidity drop in the grain, uh, we got a lot of instrumentation in the kiln, so we know exactly what's happening. We've got temperature probes in the grain itself, pressure uh, transducers, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but really, we learn to drive kilning by looking at the uh, relative humidity numbers. And so when we see that humidity drop off, we know that we can get warmer temperatures into the bed without damaging the enzyme package. So 
free dry goes into force dry. We do re airflow recirculation if we're trying to build uh, color and flavor. If we're not, like for our single origin pilsners, we're just going to keep it kind of cooler and less airflow recirculation. And then curing drives off the last bit of moisture and uh, we get we finish at about 4% moisture and finishing temperatures for a Pilsner malt will be around, I don't know, 180 Fahrenheit. And then if we're doing something like a light Munich, it might be 210 Fahrenheit, something like that. Okay. So it's really fun. You know, the, the cool thing about malting is whether you're doing one ton, 10 tons or 200 tons, it's the same process. It's seven days door to door and just the size the size of your vessel or the kiln the I guess, of the is, yep yep so the, you you yeah. had mentioned the um the raking part the mm -hmm. when the the i can't remember Root, the right term but the entanglement to, to mm -hmm. break that up and to release the heat is that yep. a mechanized process or are there still people going in with rakes and doing it like you see the pictures of like yeah. old timey yeah, so we've got both systems in the malt house. So when I talk about um, using our GKVs, our germ kiln vessels, so those have augers that turn the grain uh, during germination, but our floor malt system is very much manual labor. So we're still pulling rakes through the grain bed three times a day, morning, mid-afternoon, and evening. Um, you know, we love floor malting. It's where we got our start. And it, and for me, it, it's still an invaluable tool for training. It's a great tool for assessing each year's crop. Uh, no two years of barley are the same. So we always learn something about the behavior of the new crop of grain by doing a small two ton batch first. It, it'll tell us, you know, you know, do we need an extra 12 hours of germination time? Is it, better at, you know, a two degrees warmer, two degrees cooler. Like where, where are we sitting here to get uh, optimal conditions prior to kilning? So, um, so even if I the really, grain, even though the grain's different year to year, you're able to malt it in a way that it'll be consistent. The barley, the malt will be consistent year to year. Yep. That that's okay. the, that's the goal. You know, we, um, like we work with, um, Calypso two row, uh, Violetta two row, a little bit of Flavia uh, two row. So three, three distinct varieties and each year to year have their own personalities. And so it, it's, it's super important to get the, the flavor for them at the small scale before we, you know, go to a 10 ton batch and, and potentially have a train wreck on our hands. Yeah. I guess you want to want to mess something up at a much larger scale before you have yes yes <laughs> our motto is make small mistakes um so i'm guessing you uh especially like if you look at the custom malts option of your thing you work hand in hand with breweries to like if make exactly what they want to for to create a beer that they're dreaming of yeah, absolutely. So custom malt is super fun. We've done a bunch of these projects over the years and it, it goes a lot of different directions. You know, if a brewer is envisioning an, a slightly, you know, esoteric or uh, lesser known style that, you know, we, we've done, for example, uh, somebody asked us to do a wind malt, which is basically a, a super, super old school, uh, 
as the name implies, where the grain is essentially dried by the wind or air dried. And, you know, so that was a fun one where we were watching modification and then did kilning that was as gentle as possible. I don't think temperatures got above 165 Fahrenheit or something like that. Um, uh, so the other piece of the custom malt is uh, uh, a lot of vertical integration opportunities. So we work with folks like the Biltmore Estate um, to take barley from their farm, malt it, and then transfer it to um, whoever's doing their uh, uh, contract brewing. And so then they have a, a you know, f- kind of a farm to table project uh, out of their, out of their, from field to fermenter kind of thing. So that, that's been super cool. Um, we've done, you know, if somebody wants something that falls in between, you know, the color range of our light Munich and our dark Munich, we can do that as well. So yeah, it, it's a great opportunity to just have that and, and for us to learn more about the brewing process too. So super cool stuff there. So uh, smoking as well. We do um, uh, a lot of folks, you know, I, I'll get calls and people will be like, hey, I just, you know, chopped or trimmed up my fig tree. Can can you smoke some malt with these uh, fig branches? And I'm like, hell yeah, bring it, you know. So, um, so uh, just fun, flexible stuff like that gives us a lot of uh, different avenues to explore flavor. I was about to tell you that smoking's disgusting and no one should ever do that. But I almost think something made by, I mean, in the realm of beer, uh, smoked meats are a completely different yeah. story. But, like, I'm actually intrigued by a beer made with a malt that has been smoked with fig tree. That actually sounds good. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, and I'm with you. You know, when we first started this project, I was kind of like, mm, I'm not the biggest fan of smoked beer. You, you know, I, I don't know if this is. A, such a great opportunity, you know, distilleries, yeah. you know, we were kind of playing around in that space as well. But, but what I found, you know, what are, uh, especially we kind of hit pay dirt right out of the gate. Uh, we, we said, let's take this pecan wood and smoke our Appalachian wheat with it. And like the first time I brought it in the lab, I was like, Oh yeah, we got something here. This is going to be awesome. And because the flavor profile did not smell like an ashtray it was more like dark fruit, big, and, um, you know, had this lovely little like walnut oil character to it. And I was just like, people are going to find something cool to do with this. Let's get this out of the market ASAP. And sure enough, that, that, that was, was a big success for us. And then, you know, we've done hooked up with this great, um, group called Carolina Cookwood in the upstate of South Carolina. And he, he delivers uh, different woods to all the um, pit masters around the barbecue folks. Oh, and cool. so he had just beautiful, high quality uh, chunks of, you know, pecan, mesquite, cherry, oak, you know, all these different things. And, uh, you know, playing around with those different woods and we were mix and match with different malts. And so I do like um, cherry wood paired with a Vienna malts or, you know, put the, uh, and then we explored further, you know, of course the internet's got everything you could possibly imagine. So we had white wine barrel smoked Pilsner and, you know, just, just really had a lot of fun yeah. playing with this. And, uh, so it's been cool, you know, it, and the, and the impact on finished beer has been really interesting in the sense that it, it, it's not campfire. It's not, it, it's a flavored note in the, in the stack, you know, it's yeah. not like this, it's a supporting character instead it, of a exactly it, how, it's not like you 
you immediately pop the top and you're like, Oh, I don't want to drink that. That smells yeah. like an ashtray, you know? How how many different um setups do you have? Like of kilns cool. and Yeah, so we've got uh so we, we have three ten ton germ kiln vessels. We have we have a, a floor malting system that can do two two ton batches kind of alternating. And then on so the is smoke, that where you do like those really specialized ones yeah. with the the smoking and play around well, so, with? So we do a dry smoke. So it's actually a finished malt meets cold oh, smoke. It, okay, it, it's not like the it's not like it's um, not part of the malting process, right. like post yeah. po, post process. Post process, yeah. Okay. So we, we're really concerned that if we ran smoke through the equipment, uh, oh, like the would, blower everything would blower. become that. <laughs> exactly. Every, everything would, uh, everything would smell like pecan wood. So, and I'm here to tell you, we, we did a, a truckload sized order for a distillery recently and everything I owned smelled like pecan wood. For three weeks. <laughs> so I, I think those concerns are pretty well validated. Um, <laughs> so we've got a, a shipping container size smoking system now and our original 500 pound smoking system. So we can, we can do a lot of fun stuff at the malt house. It, it, it's um, again, there's no playbook for this stuff. So we've been, uh, you know, sort of making it up as we go along and uh, we call them river benefactions. Uh, when we come up with something that actually works that we, you know, made out of chicken wire and leftover spare parts. Have you ever watched Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas? No, but it sounds like I should. It, it's an old Jim Henson Christmas show. Okay. It, was, it was always on HBO. I, and then when I say old, I was it's old. It's either from like the early nineties, or as my daughter says, it's from the nineteen hundreds. Oh wow! Um, okay. And every time I hear there, there's this band in it that's called the River Bottom Nightmare Band. And okay. every like that just runs like that scene runs through my head every time I hear Riverbend. Okay. <laughs> nice. I'll check it out. Yeah. The, I'll, uh, I, I believe there's like rips of it on YouTube. If I find it, I'll send you a link to it. Nice. It's, awesome. it's I my my sister and I love it. A lot of people say it's horrible, but that's a it's a tra- a Christmas tradition to watch that show for me. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, do you still actually let's take a real quick um sponsor break and then I, I still have a whole bunch of malt questions for you. Right on. I buy my beer at District East in downtown Frederick, Maryland. They have an amazing selection of local and hard to find beers, and I love the option of making my own mix and match custom six pack. District East is on Northeast Street in Frederick in the same shopping center as Showroom Restaurant and Rockwell Brewery. Most weeks they have over 950 beers in stock. Check out this week's selection at www.districteastbeer.com. Are you planning on having custom glassware made for your business? Glassware availability for 2022 has already reached capacity, and it looks like costs will predictably rise this year. Don't worry, ACS Brand My Beverage has you covered with over 6 million units of the most popular glass styles exclusively in their inventory to meet your branded glassware needs right now. Lock in today's lower prices and take immediate delivery, or ACS will store your product for you until you're ready. Email sales at brandmybeverage.com or visit 
brandmybeverage.com to reserve your glassware. McClintock Distilling is Maryland's first and only certified organic distillery, handcrafting gins, whiskeys, vodkas, and cordials from non-GMO organic ingredients in downtown Frederick. Named the best vodka distillery in the country by USA Today, best gin in the world at the International Spirits Competition, and double gold at the World Spirits Competition for bourbon, rye, and gin. Open now for tours, tastings, and classes. Come sample the most awarded distillery in Frederick today. So do you still homebrew? Huh. Very, very rarely. Uh, I did one batch last year uh, to celebrate our 10th anniversary. Okay. And uh, <laughs> it was, um, I always tell people I, with two young kids running around the house, I could think of no more dangerous hobby to oh, have seriously. Than, than homebrewing. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got sharp objects, open flames and hot liquid, you know, yeah. what, what could go wrong? And uh so it, it's, um, but yeah, no, still, still homebrew a little bit, but I, uh, ha- have had to put that away. You, you know, I've, uh, been lucky enough, you know, with our 10th anniversary, we were able to do a, a series of collaborations with our brewery partners around the South. And that was super fun to get back in the brew house and, you know, just sort of talk shop, uh, you know, from, from mashing in all the way through the process and some great beers came out of it. We've actually uh, just um, one of our, uh, the last one in the series actually is uh, a uh, Czech uh, dark lager with uh, our friends at little animals in Johnson city. Uh, It's a beer called night hoss. And uh, so this one, we just had a lot of fun with it. It's an experimental Czech Pilsner uh, malt, an experimental Kara Munich that we were making and our, um, uh, sunset wheat, the, the malt that we made for our 10th anniversary and, uh, just turned out beautifully. Uh, we're, uh, you know, that, the the sunset wheat has got this really interesting sort of Christmas spice cookie kind of, uh, flavor profile oh, cool. to it. And, and that came through in the finished beer and, uh, you know, just a really nice lager coming in around 5% ABV and, um, love that and then our friends at crooked can down in florida we did a, a multi-grain um uh california common and that was that was a really fun one as well so it was great you know just an awesome opportunity to kind of you know jump in the brew house with folks and and uh pick their brains and learn you know what they're what they see coming down the pike in terms of styles and it was it was super fun does that um does the knowledge in the brewing process help a lot with, with malting? It's like, it gives you a better idea of like what the end product needs to be and what you can do to help breweries. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we send everything, every batch goes out to third party lab for a full certificate of analysis. And you, you know, everyone knows where the numbers are supposed to be, right? But what what's really helpful from the maltster's position is to understand the sort of nuances around those numbers. You know, so for example, when we talk about uh, soluble versus total protein, S over T, every brewer knows where that number should be in terms of the, you know, it should be in the mid forties, right? Well, if you read the second page of the, of the manual, 
That second page tells you, well, yeah, sort of, but if you're working with variety X, it can be, it should be 43, or it should be, or if you're working with variety Y, it's for, it should be, can be 47, you know? And so understanding the sort of the nuances around like, yes, I know what the accepted range is, but let me show you why it's okay if this number is a little north or a little south of what you were expecting you know being able to have that sort of you know educated conversation around nuance is is super important you know brian and i were just we both had advanced degrees in the sciences and so we're like man if we're going to do this we're going to do this right and we're going to know the science behind this stuff we're going to be able to talk shop we knew our brewers had been to siebel or or uc davis or whatever and they were they were going to know their stuff and so it's been really helpful for us to to you know interpret that c of a data and then also time spent in the brew house i i can walk into a brew house and see like okay if you're at a seven barrel brew house with you know manual turning with a shovel or turning with a a a mash uh paddle or whatever you know you've got one set of problems if you're in a 20 barrel brew house doing three turns a day you you're going to be asking for something else from our malt and you know i need to be able to tell people how to work with the malt in those two very different spaces and so that that's that's where we get a lot of uh you know that those conversations inform uh you know future relationships that we're building and help head off problems uh so you know some of it's just as simple as is tuning the mill properly. You know, I, I say two row kernels, they're plumper than our six row kernels, but they're not as plump as the two row from out West in most years. So we talk a lot about milling and then we talk about pH and, and uh, you know, a lot of people hear six row and they're like, Oh, well I have to, you know, step mash or decoct this. And I'm like, no, you don't. Here's the reason why proteins are low that we've got enough DP to, to convert this thing, you know? So it, yeah, the, it, it's a two way street chatting with brewers and, and I've learned a lot from them and hopefully they've picked up a thing or two from me along, over the years. So I'm guessing that to, like you also need to, on the other end of it, uh, work closely with farmers to oh, yeah. like, so that they can, so do you need them to do certain things with their crops to help you along the process too? Oh man, absolutely. So this, this is uh this is a much longer arc. Um, so I, I mentioned uh, Avalon earlier, so I, I'll, I'll go all the way back to the research side of things. So we sat down with Virginia tech uh, plant breeders, probably, you know, 2011 and you know, they're learning from us, like, what do you need to, in a malting barley? And we, we told them, we said, two row would be preferable, plump kernels, high test weight, you know, low disease, good germination, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, great. We now have our marching orders. We'll uh, hopefully have a barley variety ready for you in 10 to 12 years. And I was like, what? Are, are you serious? Like, craft <laughs> beer is exploding, man. Like, I, I need a two row variety yesterday. And they're like, that's just how it works, Brent. Just hold your hat. And uh, so anyway, flash forward about 10 to 12 years later, we now have Avalon, the first sort of Southern born and bred variety 
uh, that has thoroughbred our original six row as one of its parents. And so the conversation starts all the way back there with variety development. And then what Virginia Tech and NC State and University of Kentucky and several others around the Southeast also do is crop production uh, testing, variety trials. So they'll grow the same variety at, you know, anywhere from five to 10 different research stations across a given state. And they'll put the same treatment of, you know, nitrogen fertilizer on it or a new uh, fungicide, pesticide treatment or whatever. And all of that, uh, all those variety trial programs translate into management recommendations for farmers to grow grain of the highest quality for malt. So we try to be a liaison between those two spaces of like, you, you know, talking with the researchers, learning what's new, what's what's working best, and then making those connections so that grower X talks to researcher Y. And that when we do that, you know, we typically work with farmers that I call who are students of the game, you know, folks that are looking to better them, uh, you know, improve year over year, as, as they often say, you only get 50 shots at it if you're a farmer. And, and if you're a, a long-lived farmer, you only get 50 shots at it. So, you know, they're interested in doing better year over year. Um, and there's always new recommendations coming out. So we'll typically this time of year, things get super crazy. So we've just harvested grain across the Southeast. So we're getting in samples from last from this year's harvest that we'll assess for quality. And then within six to eight weeks, we're going to be talking with the growers about what to plant and how much in October for the next growing season. So it's a lot of conversations, you know, synthesizing the data from NC State and Virginia Tech, learning, you know, what's what's coming out, what, you know, should you dial back your nitrogen uh, amendments for this year, uh, which is super important right now with all the supply chain issues and that, the super high prices we're dealing with. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so we'll have all these these wonderful conversations uh, with growers and, you know, we'll, we'll typically arrive at a mix of two row varieties planted from, you know, central Tennessee to coastal Virginia. Uh, our, and our method, the method to that madness is not put all our eggs in one basket. So, uh, climate, uh, is always throwing us for a loop. You know, if we plant on the coast, we can get hit with, uh, you know, early hurricanes and, uh, squalls. If we plant too much barley in higher elevations around Asheville, we are subject to frost damage. And so we want to kind of hedge our bets by planting in a, in a broader geographic region. So all that comes in the conversation as well. Do you do any uh, certified organic products? We started uh, as a hundred percent organic malt house, and okay. uh, we the year crop year two thousand and twelve was a complete bust on uh, organic crop quality. And a gentleman named Billy Dawson uh, called us up and said, "Hey, I've got a." I was able to get a good crop of thoroughbred. It's conventionally grown. I don't know if you're interested, and we're like. Yes, because the the other alternative is to close the business. So bring it on. <laughs> and um, so we started working with conventionally grown uh, material in 2012, and the malt got better, and our lives got easier. So uh, we we've we've stayed in the conventional space. Uh, 
you know, the environmentalist in us uh, kind of hurt a little bit from that. But the the crop quality piece was just, I mean, truly night and day. I mean, it was brighter kernels, more uniform, malted better, better data, and the, you know, just everything got easier. And um, also, I get like two calls a year for organic malt. So oh, uh, really? the, demand, the demand piece was just not there either like it was kind of like oh that's cool it's organic but no one really cared i mean yeah. the craft beer drinker doesn't care that it's organic i mean so um do you still supply it if someone needs it or you've just, uh, removed yourself from doing yeah, that we, at all we just, just stepped away from it it was um y you know to be certified organic that's the other piece of it is if you want a certified organic beer you have to purge your system with an organic brew that you can't call certified organic. And oh. then the, ne the next brew you do with organic malt can be certified. And so it's, it's pretty painful uh, to, to get everything certified, you know, and from our perspective, the only thing we add to malt is water. So it, it was like, you know, are we really going to pay for this painful certification process to go or to yeah. certified organic when all we do is add water, you know? So, yeah. If, it, if what you're buying certified, like right. that should just carry over. <laughs> like the Right. And, and it, it does not by any stretch of the imagination. So the malt house has to be certified. There's got to be chain of custody paperwork from, you know, farmer to malt house, malt house to brewery. It's a pain. Um, how much, uh, have your, of your business has been to supplying distilleries? Is that a, like a growing portion of your business? It absolutely is. Yeah. So we're probably 25% into distilleries right now. And um, I imagine that just keeps growing as the craft distilling it, world it is does. exploding. Yeah, it really does that, you know, a lot of those folks are, are very into, um, to the locality of where the grain came from and they're able to, you know, highlight that, you know, the painful part is just waiting. You know, we've got a uh, couple of projects with Chattanooga whiskey that are finally uh, hitting the streets and I'm super pumped about them uh, because, you know, again, we, we did custom malt for them yeah. four and five years ago and it's now like it's having its, you know, ta-da moment. And, uh, really stoked about that because it's um that is you know. definitely the one uh <clears throat> pain point when like doing anything fun with a distillery unless yeah. it's like just an infused spirit or something like that waiting period because i made a hop infused whiskey with a local distillery to me and nice. that two-year wait <laughs> for it to be done was so painful yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's an exciting space though, you know, lots of creativity going on. Um, you, you know, uh, and I, as I get older, I'm, I'm more interested in, in the spirits world than, than craft beer. Uh, I'm not a fan of hazy. I'm, I'm much more, I love that loggers are having their moment right now. And, uh, so it, it's, a it's a cool space. Um, I think I've covered everything I want to know about malt. We've uh, what, but what I want to do is definitely tell people to check out Riverbend's website, which is yeah. just riverbendmalt.com because you have an absolutely phenomenal website. 
from just the the design of it to the amount of information on there you could learn everything you could possibly want to know about uh the malting process and even the grains and things so if you if you are curious about malting at all check out riverbendmalt.com yeah it we, you know we work hard on that we've got a, a nice uh uh, updated list of beers that have come out around the Southeast that have got our malt in it, you know, just as a, a way to kind of keep people in the loop of, of what, um, where our malt is going and to shine a light on our customers that are supporting local, uh, sourced ingredients. And, but yeah, yeah, absolutely designed as an, as an informational tool, uh, to keep people in the loop about what we're doing and what differentiates craft malt, you, you know, you know, when you really think about it, you know, the, the closest trip, the closest malt house to Asheville, a commercial scale is Breeze and they're in Chilton, Wisconsin, and they buy their barley from Wyoming. And then a lot of people use Wireman malt and that's made 8,000 miles away. So it really does matter when you choose to source local, you're getting a fresher product and you're supporting growers that are, you know, hundred or so miles from us. Do you supply across the whole country or do you, are you supplying mainly in the East coast and, or even just the Southeast? Um, I would say 99% of our, uh, products go back into the Southeast. Um, you know, we'll send the occasional pallet out to, you know, Colorado, California, wherever for a collaboration project or something like that. But we don't, we don't put any sales effort into uh, areas outside of the southeast okay is there is there anything important about malting or about riverbend that i haven't asked you that like because i i don't know what i don't know Uh, yeah is there anything i've missed that we should talk about um i guess i'll just put my uh uh president of the craft maltsters guild hat on for just (laughs) a second and say um you know craft malt is, is a movement now. Uh, we, we represent over 60 craft maltsters across the nation and in the world now, really. I think that's been really one of the most uh, entertaining uh, developments for me over the last couple of years is to, you know, have conversations with people in Japan and Italy and uh, Mexico and Brazil about making local malt in their neck of the woods, you know? And, and I think it's really cool to see, because I always tell people, the, the craft malting movement is people from tons of different backgrounds, different skill sets, different varieties of barley, different uh, equipment, you know, whether it be professionally or, you know, backyard constructed, you know, all these different uh, people are coming in to, to malting. And I think it's, it's, it's an exciting opportunity. You know, I'm not quite quite ready to declare that, you know, barley has a terroir, you know, akin to grapes where I can, you know, this variety that's half a mile, uh, you know, the same variety can be grown half a mile away from it, you know, can have a distinct flavor. But, but we know that different barley varieties have flavor, different flavors that are distinctive. And so if you couple that with all of these geographic differences from globally now, I think it's just a, it's an interesting chapter for, for craft beer to write as we go uh, deeper into uh, this decade. 
All right, I have some just random questions to ask you now that have nothing right. to do with anything we've talked about. <laughs> All right, uh, fire away. Do you wash apples before eating them? Yes. Okay. A lot of people don't, uh, including myself, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but I feel like yeah, uh, chemicals on everything. I know. I was just gonna say, like your background and your knowledge. I feel like you should be, like you would be the one of the authorities on whether we should be or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Even organic fact. apples, they spray just just different chemicals on organic apples. So. <laughs> uh, best fast food French fries. Defend your answer. Mm. Uh, Chick-fil-A waffle fries, fresh, hot. If they've been under the fryer or have been under the lights, they suck. The, the waffle fries are horrible if they've become, if they've even started they, to cool. Yeah. If they've gone limp, they're done. What would the title of your biography be? So I, I actually have a, a canned answer for this one. So that if anyone writes a You've book on, <laughs> yeah, I, but yeah, I definitely chatted uh, with, with our marketing folks about putting it together. So the, the river bend story would be called uh, walking backwards. Why that? Walking backwards when you're pulling the rake. Oh. It, it, so it's, it's kind of a, a funny way because you're looking forward, yeah. but walking backward. And so that that's kind of like a, just a funny sort of window into our minds as we go through our, our work day. You're, you're probably the only person I've talked to that has actually put any thought into that and had an actual answer. <laughs> yeah. Walking backwards. Who would win in a battle between a ninja and a pirate? Mm, well, they both have swords, right? Um, uh, I'm guessing the ninja because he's going that's, to be sober. It's the wrong answer. Yeah, it's, a, it's the pirate. I mean, everyone thinks I'm wrong, and the, and I was yeah. hoping that at least being in North Carolina, that you would be on the pirate side. Uh, <laughs> but I guess that maybe that's only the on the coast that people yeah. have the affinity yeah. for pirates. <laughs> I just think the pirate would be sober, and the and the ninja would be way more astute at knocking him out. But being drunk can help. Like you, this like, is true. You're fearless. <laughs> so, uh, is Batman a ninja? Mm. yes uh, that has Peace. no correct or wrong answer <laughs> uh so you're correct <laughs> what is the scariest yeah. movie you have ever watched uh i'm not much into slasher flicks and things like that so i uh Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I definitely much prefer I don't like I'm I don't like really gore. I prefer yeah. like more of like psychological thriller suspense type scary. Oh, Jesus, what is the movie that freaked me out in my childhood was the never ending story. That that's just what oh, comes to mind. My wife and I made the mistake of like sh like our kid having our kids watch that recently without uh, thinking about like how terrifying yes, the movie. Terrifying. Yeah. I still remember it was that scene where he's like in the marsh or something yes, and the, like, uh, where Atreyu yeah. won't uh, yes. succumbs to the sadness. <laughs> yeah. That, that one sticks in the brain deep right yeah. there. Uh, flats or drumsticks. Um, I'm a big jazz fan. So maybe flats. Is that what you're talking about? Oh no. Sorry. Uh, wings. Flat, flat, like the 
the drumsticks are the drumstick part. Flats are the oh. the um maybe that's more of a northeast thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lost in the vocabulary there. I thought you were talking about like the the brushes that the jazz musicians oh, play. No. I, I totally no. went in. Man, that totally would be a, yeah, that would be a random question. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. Where <laughs> I'll go with it. Yes, I, we don't. What do you call flats up in the Northeast? Flats. The it's the 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 two a piece part finger? of a chicken wing. Like, you yeah, know, no. like where you? Oh, okay. Oh yeah, you break it apart. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, we. I don't know that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> But duly noted. I now I know yeah. if I'm talking to someone in the south that yeah, we don't... It, it, it's just it's just a wing in the south. Oh. As far as <laughs> um. All right. Well, I'll just say pass. pass. <laughs> all right. Pizza or tacos? Do you have both those terms in North Carolina? Yes, we do. <laughs> and we we are uh, tacos all day long. The, the, that is correct answer because both are correct. Um, yes, yes. So shout out to uh, Taco Munoz, uh, the taco place that is bolted on to Zilico, uh here in Asheville. I think um, there there are few things sadder in life than when you get a bad taco. Yes, yes. Like, or or an insanely overpriced taco also makes me mad. Yeah. So it has to hit that sweet spot right yeah. there. It has to be delicious, but not don't punch me in the face with the price point either. What's scarier, aliens or clowns? Mm, aliens. Name a famous person you would love to meet. Uh, I would, living or dead? Yeah. Uh, man, I'd love to have dinner with Ernest Hemingway, Bob Marley, and Jack Kerouac. I would be an eclectic... Uh dinner party yeah. <laughs> uh are you watching anything good on tv right now no my wife is making me watch emily in paris and i can't stand it i don't know did I I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> you did say that out loud see i just uh get really tired and go to bed whenever my <laughs> wife has decided that she's gonna watch some awful tv series <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's uh I it's get like really good sleep city. during those times. <laughs> yeah. It's like sex in the city in Paris. And okay. it's, ugh, it's not good. Uh, what is the worst concert you've ever attended? Oh, let's see. Mm. I remember is it Alanis Morissette opening for back Dave in the Matthews. 1900s. Yes. In the 1900s <laughs> and Alanis Morissette's, set was so bad it just pissed off the crowd really? like they weren't in a good they weren't in a good space at, at all like it was you know we were all kind of setting up for a hippie jammy show and and she just came out and screamed her way through 45 minutes of material <laughs> we were just like get off the stage we're done like stop was it that like the crowd mainly just didn't like Alanis Morissette or did she oh, give yeah, a totally. poor performance? It, it was a little of both, but okay. people were just, people were there to, to, to dance and noodle uh, around in a circle and yeah. Alanis Morissette did, did they had, not They had already but, gotten to, into the yeah. right mind space. Exactly. And people to, were in the, they were ready to dance and she came out and preached. not deliver. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I, I always liked her music, but it is a little preachy. If you've yeah. 
if you've prepared yourself for a Dave Matthews concert, the Alanis Morissette may be a jar to the system. Yeah, yeah. And a this, harsh yeah. to your buzz. Right, right. Yeah. This was the early days, you know, where where he would, you know, do the twenty minute jam songs, not yeah. the you know, not the radio favorites. So it was uh it was it didn't it did not go over well. Is it acceptable to use a gift card on a first date? Odd, I would say. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> what is the best starburst color? Uh, my daughter eats these things every night and I am going to say whatever the pink one is. Yeah. So I, uh, up until yesterday, uh, the question was, what is the best starburst flavor? Yes. And then Mike from Dissolver pointed out to me that they aren't really flavors. They're just colors. So, okay. yeah. All right. <laughs> so that All right. I, I am, I amended the question to be what color are they? Because right. Like what is pink? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I'm it, sure it's it, is supposed to be a flavor of something, but it just tastes pink, <laughs> right? It, it just tastes like pink juice, whatever that is. You know, so. does pineapple belong on a pizza? Absolutely. No, that's wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> is... So, uh, my custom pizza is green peppers, uh, spinach, and pineapple. So I, I will I will amend it to banana peppers and pineapple on a pizza is actually really good with ham um, the, the the Hawaiian pr- approach yes n- no oh no yeah not right? with the ham and stuff but but I don't know I I think a normal Hawaiian doesn't have banana peppers on it does it I think it's just ham and pineapple. Yeah, pe- people do a lot of wild things yeah. with pizza. So, but yeah, I- I'll take your point. Yeah, banana. But pepper. ultimately, no pineapple has no business on pizza. If you're wrong. <laughs> it is spinach is good on pizza though? I will. Yeah. Uh, um, is Nickelback actually a good band? No. Correct answer. <laughs> um, what goes in the bowl first, cereal or milk? Cereal. Okay. Good. Uh, I'm just waiting for the first person to tell me milk so I can tell them how no, much of a maniac insane. they are. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> Go I mean, get yourself checked. There's right. <laughs> All right, Brent. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I, it was very educational. Um, I actually, awesome. I, I have, um, I don't, I don't even know how many brewery tours at this point. I have gone on where I thought I knew most about malt, but you definitely right. taught me uh, a good chunk today that I that I'd never heard or learned before. So thank you very much for that. I yeah, you bet. Very, found it to be very interesting. Yeah, this um, is fun, man. Appreciate you having me on. So thank you for your time, um, and thank you everyone for listening. Cheers. Have a good one, y'all. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook, and if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh my god, that's good.